Have you ever believed in a false gospel? Do you think it's possible that you might be believing even this morning in a false gospel? Or how about a church? Do you know of a local church that historically has preached the true gospel, but over time they began to deny the gospel in many of their church practices? Maybe over time it became grievously self-evident that the church denied the gospel by the pervasive presence of unrepentant rebellion and pride towards Jesus. Maybe it's the lack of good fruit that seems to be evident in most members' lives, including its leaders, but it seems to suggest that they are gospel preaching in the pulpit, but really gospel denying in their practice. With its lack of commitment to care for its members, to correct one another in love when wronged, to forgive one another when wronged, to maintain that gospel unity, they they seem to give the impression on the outside that they believe the gospel, but, but really, in practice, they deny it. Again, not even to mention some of the man-made and territorial mindset practices that can easily creep into the lives of a church. Uh, before we know it, churches look more like businesses, Fortune 500 companies, rather than the spiritual, supernatural organism that the church is called to be. Even from the internet, it seems like it was a gospel-preaching church, but when you walked through the doors and investigated long enough, you discovered that it had a gospel-denying church culture, a culture where Jesus was certainly talked about, but not a culture where Jesus was humbly worshipped in spirit and in truth. You see, it's quite possible for people like you and I to have been reading the Bible for years, but in reality, we could have been reading it with dimly lit lenses. We assumed things about God, about salvation, about the church, about marriage, and the list could go on and on and on. But we weren't really seeing what was there in the sacred text. Yes, we've learned some good things along the way that were true and helpful, but we remained largely ignorant. Even though we had attended church for maybe more times in the last 10 years than many people around the world will in a lifetime, there was still a Grand Canyon-sized hole in our study of the whole counsel of God. But then all of a sudden, by God's amazing mercy, it was like a light shining in a dark house. We began to see truth in a whole new way. The theology we once learned and the years we spent in many past church experiences that once felt like it was good food for the soul, now looking back, looks more like spiritual cotton candy. Even amidst some of the good things that we are thankful for and we can praise God for, A vast portion of our spiritual pilgrimage now feels cheap, superficial, uh, religious fluff and stuff. 
And we realized, as God was humbling us, that we've lived for years like babies in their diapers, feeding on expired, spoiled milk. At the core of its message, we received a word from the Bible, but really when it was re-examined, it was more like fake news. We zealously latched onto it. We even believed it. Hook, line, and sinker. The ancient proverb rings true, doesn't it? Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In the Apostle Paul's New Testament letter to the Galatians, he warned his hearers who were really made up largely of new Christians, new Christians who were falling prey to this very seductive trap, the seductive trap of believing in a false gospel, which inevitably leads to a gospel-denying church culture. Notice what he says at the very outset of the letter, Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And then as you read through the letter to the Galatians, you get pretty much towards the end. Paul draws the inevitable contrast of what happens when you believe the true gospel versus believing a false gospel. And how it affects our church community. How it affects our church culture. And he does that by challenging his hearers to examine the fruit of people's lives. Watch how they live. Listen to how they talk. Pay attention to the church's unity, what they most prioritize. Pay attention to the church's concern for holiness, how they respond to personal and corporate sin. And pay attention to the relationships in the church. Are they full of love and service? Or are they full of themselves and selfish pride? In summary, Paul basically says this. If you are believing what is true about Jesus and the gospel, Jesus will begin to change you from the inside out. And if you haven't believed what is true about Jesus you haven't believed what is true about the gospel, then the lack of change and the lack of fruit will become more evident in your life. Hence, that's why Paul draws their attention to the preeminence of love being displayed through service. Friends, love is not an add-on to the extra credit on the test for being a Christian, love is the leadoff hitter for what it means to be a Christian. Listen carefully to Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Brothers and sisters, if you wanted to summarize really what the book of Galatians is about, it would basically be something like this. What we believe about the gospel must take root and shape the convictions, the character, and the culture of our church. What we believe about the gospel must take root and shape the convictions, the character, and the culture of our church. Uh, J.I. Packer once said, a church's culture should be orthopraxy, expressing orthodoxy. It should look like self-giving love for others that in turn reflects the sacrificial love for us of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. The Apostle Paul made it clear that it's very possible for professing Christians to be led astray by listening to a message that says gospel on the label. But in reality, it's not the gospel according to Jesus. Friends, this was a danger for the Galatian Christians in the first century, and it is the same danger that is before all of us in the 21st century. So friends, without knowing it this morning, could you be believing in a false gospel? If you examine the patterns and fruits of your life, is it fruit that other believers would affirm as commending the gospel? Or distorting the gospel? Is the message about Christ's selfless and dying love for us shaping the convictions, shaping the character, shaping the culture of this local church? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 specifically. And our sermon text today will be in Mark 9, verses 30 to 41. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 493. Mark chapter 9. We left off a couple of weeks ago in our study of the Gospel of Mark with the disciples facing a ministry quandary. A man's son had suffered immensely from epilepsy, and was tormented by a demon, but the disciples, the nine that kind of hung back and thought they could uh, get things done, they had failed to heal this boy. Uh, we learned from Mark 9 that their failure in fulfilling this ministry task sadly revealed that they were becoming self-reliant. Perhaps it was ministry success from the past that deluded them into thinking they could heal people at will. We got this. We've done this hundreds of times. Or perhaps they simply underestimated the immense stronghold that can be found in some people's lives with the demonic. That's why Jesus said this kind cannot be driven out except by prayer. Either way, the desperate father's honesty of having faith but struggling with unbelief, I believe, help my unbelief, it was a sufficient rebuke to the disciples who had really no faith altogether. 
This morning we find ourselves heading back south now. We've been north of Galilee for a few sermons. Now we're going back down south through the region of Galilee where Jesus' ministry headquarters was primarily located, back in Capernaum. However, unlike what we've seen in the first several chapters of Mark, Jesus isn't going to be sticking around. He's not going to be ministering to the masses like he's done before. This time, he continues to narrow in his focus on teaching the disciples. His eyes, his heart is on the twelve. Because Jesus' eyes and his heart is on the cross. Mark 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Grant, thanks for the water, by the way. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I really have just one main idea that I'll repeat multiple times throughout the sermon. Here it is. The motto of the world says... Outdo others while you make a name for yourself. The message of the cross says, serve others while you make much of the name of Christ. The motto of the world says, outdo others while you make a name for yourself. The message of the cross says, serve others while you make much of the name of Christ. In verses 30 to 32, uh, we see three things that appear to be playing on repeat. 
like a song you can't just get out of your head that just keeps being over and over again throughout the day. We see three common songs that have been sung before being sung again. Three themes, we might say, that are being played on the loudspeakers in Mark's gospel. Themes that we've actually seen in previous passages between Jesus' leadership on the one hand and the disciples who followed him on the other. Uh, We see there in verse 30, Jesus desiring anonymity. Jesus desiring anonymity. Then in verse 31, we see Jesus reiterating his cross-centered mission. Jesus reiterating his cross-centered mission. And then there in verse 32, we see the disciples' ongoing ignorance and fear. We see the disciples' ongoing ignorance and growing fear. Look with me in verse 30. In verse 30, we read, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Uh, We've seen this before, right? If you've been here for the last year or so studying through Mark's gospel, this shouldn't surprise us. We've seen Jesus travel and minister with this ebb and flow of anonymity to his ministry. And sometimes he's out in public, out in the public eye, with hundreds and maybe even thousands around him. And then we find him sometimes in obscurity. Obscurity where really only a few of the disciples know where he's at. For example, just a little summary to catch you back up to speed. In Mark 1:44, we saw this with the healing of the leper. In Mark 5:43, with Jairus and his family and friends after the healing of his daughter. We've seen this in Mark 7:24 when Jesus was ministering in the region of Tyre and Sidon. We've seen this with the healing of the deaf man in Mark 7:36. We've even witnessed this with his inner three disciples coming down the mountain in Mark 9. Verse 9, friends, among many of the powerful and amazing things Jesus did in public, he often chose to do powerful and amazing things in private, too. Uh, Friends, just as a sidebar, don't judge a church's ministry by how public or big it is. Do not judge a church's ministry by how public, well-known, or big it is. Yes, Jesus was known to the public. Yes, Jesus' name became famous, but Jesus was not intentionally a crowd drawer. If Jesus was preaching at CCBC every Sunday, he would not mind a little pew emptying in his sermons. Not because he doesn't love people, but because he's not fooled about our heart's fickleness when we approach him. By doing this, Jesus showed that he remained faithful to his heavenly Father, not simply when people were watching him, but also when he was serving under the radar. Serving and caring for others when really none of the big crowds were around, except maybe his 12 disciples. And here again in the Gospel of Mark, we see the King of love, the Good Shepherd, the faithful bridegroom choosing to withdraw from the crowds, withdraw from the public eye to stick closely and intimately to his disciples. Uh, Friends, Jesus did not view these disciples as nameless students 
in a large university setting. These were 12 men that he loved, that he loved to spend time with in private quarters. You might even say Jesus had a PhD in discipleship incognito. In these more secretive setting moments, we actually discovered Jesus taught some of the most valuable and life-changing lessons to his disciples. Friends, Jesus had no problem remaining hidden in anonymity, hidden in obscurity, until his hour would come. The divinely pointed hour for Jesus to accomplish what his heavenly Father had sent him from heaven to do. That's why in verse 31, if you want to look down there, he reminds them, I don't know if you've been catching this, you've been studying Mark with us, he reminds them for the second time, like he did back in Mark 8, 31. Look with me in Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Friends, this is the second time Jesus has now taught his disciples about his impending suffering, his ominous and approaching death. But he also promised for the second time that Jesus would conquer the grave, that he would rise again. We read in Mark 8, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Oh, friends, do not read past that as if that was some dry commentary. We are hearing the confidence and the resolve of our Savior. Jesus is not cowering from this ominous fate in his life. Jesus is telling them emphatically, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. I'm going to be scoffed at and mocked at and treated unjustly. And I'm going to die. I'm going to die a criminal's death. And I'm going to rise again. Beloved, whatever you've been taught previously in your life, make no mistake about it. The cross of Jesus Christ was not plan B. The cross of Jesus Christ was not an unhappy misfortune to the Messiah's mission. No, Jesus' life was not somehow interrupted rudely by suffering that entered into his life. No, this is not Jesus having a premature death. Oh, I feel sorry for Jesus. He didn't get to live a long life and collect seashells by the seashore in retirement. No, Jesus didn't waste his life. Jesus didn't have a premature death in his life. Jesus was on time every second doing exactly what his heavenly father had called him to do. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ was God's plan A. Anything different than that is blasphemy. The cross is not, oh, wow, God's got no control over what's going on in the world, and man has basically won the day. Friends, take up all the armies. Take up every dictator. Take up every evil person that's ever lived. Put them on a battleship against Jesus, and with one word, Jesus can sink 
the ship. Hell trembles before him. Jesus was not afraid of the cross. Friends, it was not plan B, it was plan A. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew why he came. Jesus knew that he would die. And Jesus knew that he would rise again. Friends, that's a Jesus. That is a God worth worshiping. Friends, it was even before the foundation of the earth that the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had this rescue mission in their playbook. They were going to use even culpable, liable, fully responsible evil and hatred of men to accomplish the beautiful plan of salvation. The wonderful and amazing plan of God Almighty rescuing sinners from the condemnation of sin and from damnation in hell. Oh, brothers and sisters, please understand, Jesus did not take pleasure in suffering, but he also didn't question God's goodness in suffering. Jesus did not take pleasure in suffering, but he also did not question God's goodness in suffering. Beloved, if you've recently received bad news about your health, or you've recently been laid off from your job, or you've been unjustly slandered for your obedience to Christ, or you've received word that further division has taken place amongst close family members or friends, Friends, regardless of what bad timing or inconvenience that might come into our lives, friends, God is still reigning on the throne. We just sang that from Psalm 93 at the beginning. I think we as Christians sometimes just need to have that. Sheila, you do that sometimes to us. God is on the throne. He's reigning on the throne. This is a good way to say God's in control. He's ruling the nations. He's sustaining the universe. He's holding you up by the word of his power. Friends, God is reigning on the throne, and if you are in Christ, God only intends what is ultimately good for you. Ask him, friends, if suffering enters your life like an unwanted stranger at the door, Ask him to teach you his goodness in a way you've never seen before. Ask him to teach you and reteach you that along the bitter road of suffering and sorrow and disappointment, the road of working for your eternal good and joy is going to prevail. Don't you love that old hymn writer, William Cooper, who once said, God moves in a mysterious way? His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Friends, the way of the cross for Jesus will shape the path we walk in following Jesus. What path is that? Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. 
Now, after hearing about this imminent suffering than glory speech by Jesus for the second time, well, how did the disciples respond? Did they say, by golly, we got it, Skipper? He's not one of the disciples. That's Gilligan. Never mind. But, you know, is John and James giving dab to each other? Oh, we got this, teach. We got this. Did it click for them? Did they say, hey, yo, 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 Peter blew it back in Mark 8. I don't want to be called Satan, but I think we got it this time. Is that what happened? Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I think some of the most difficult and underappreciated jobs in the world are being a school teacher and a stay-at-home parent. Constantly all day long, they are repeating themselves to their students and their kids with the same rules, the same reminders, the same expectations, and yet it can often feel like you're talking to a wall. Throwing darts at a cement block, repeating yourself over and over and over again like a broken record or a scratch CD. For everyone that lived before 2005, that's what we used to listen to. Because apparently what we're saying isn't sticking. If you're a school teacher or a parent here this morning, Jesus understands the frustrating reality of repeating yourself over and over again and not being heard. Jesus taught and retaught his disciples, and they didn't always understand or grasp what he was clearly teaching them. Friends, I think we all need to have a little dosage of humility this morning, and let's just take it back a notch. So if you've been following Jesus for a number of years now, let's just let's replay the tape a little bit. You might think you're holy, righteous, and pretty mature in the faith, but let's think about it for a minute. How many of us heard the gospel not one time, not 10 times, not 50 times, not even maybe 100 times before we actually believed it. I wonder how many of us have confessed the same sin over and over and over again to a spouse, a pastor, and our friends, and we're wondering, are we even growing at all? How many of us have read our Bibles in the morning and we can't even remember anything we read four hours later? For the disciples, they were so slow to believe, inconsistent in their commitment to Christ. When they spoke up, they showed their unbelief, their foolishness, and their dullness of heart. And when they remained quiet, it was often showing how they were ashamed and were afraid. Friends, isn't it just amazing? Just sit with me for a minute and think. Isn't it amazing how patient God is with us? How patient God is with us? His word doesn't change. His mercies are new every morning. How many of us have forgotten how faithful he's been to you? Because we're too wrapped up in maybe what's, what's sitting right in front of me. Friends, God is so patient, so kind, so forbearing with the slowness of his children to understand. Or how about the fear of man? How many of us would be so honest that we shrink back 
quite a bit when an opportunity to step up arises. How many of us try to take the back seat, proverbial speaking, all the time? Husbands, how often do you look to your wife to be the head of your family because you're afraid to lead? Sisters, how often are you afraid to say something when sisters are gossiping because doing so might mean they might not include you in their circle anymore? Kids, when you're at school and your friends are saying things about Jesus that are not honoring to him, how many times have you been afraid because you don't want to lose their friendship to say something? Or how many of all of us, including this one right here, when you're sitting in a classroom and you're like, I have no idea what the pastor said. I don't even know what that means. I just, I'm not smart enough. Everybody's just more spiritual than me. I've been reading the Bible forever and I just don't get it. But you don't ask questions. You just cower down. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing. Either way, if we're not willing to ask for help, if we're not willing to ask questions to learn, friends, that's not merely timidity, that's pride. That's pride. Cultivate humility by acknowledging you don't know and you want help. You see, these disciples are much like us, aren't they? It's a vicious cycle of ignorance and fear. Ignorance and fear. And yet Christ remains patient, repeating himself, reteaching the same things until the scriptures and his word would sink deep in their hearts. Uh, Friends, may God's patience and kindness towards you cause you to show that same patience and kindness to another believer. Now, if they were going to be ambassadors for Jesus to represent him to the world when Jesus would resurrect and go back into heaven, they had to grasp some necessary lessons along the way. And that's why Jesus is going, I've got to pack your book bag filled with invaluable lessons before I go to Calvary. So he gives them in our section this morning two lessons that Jesus would impart to these men. I have these as subpoints. You can write them down if you'd like. Subpoint number one or lesson number one. To become great in the kingdom of God, you must learn how to be a servant. To become great in the kingdom of God, you must learn how to be a servant. And lesson number two, to see the work of God's kingdom increase, the love of distinction must decrease. To see the work of God's kingdom increase, the love of distinction must decrease. Let's look at that first lesson. To become great in the kingdom of God, you must learn how to be a servant. Look with me starting in verse 33 again. Verse 33 to 37. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So apparently on the way south from the region of Mount Hermon, 
where they were at, the Mount of Transfiguration earlier in Mark 9, the disciples apparently had distanced themselves a little bit from Jesus. You ever one of those moments, kind of you're visiting a new city and you got that one person that's just kind of like, hey, I know where we're going, and, but it's really just an excuse to like talk about something you don't want someone else to hear? Well, apparently the 12 disciples were distancing themselves just a little bit, just enough so that Jesus wasn't involved in the conversation. They had a road trip debate, we might say. A road trip debate about who was the greatest. A debate that they really didn't want Jesus to hear for some reason. They were arguing like so many do today on news channels and on social media. Like so many do in locker rooms and in living rooms. Arguing like so many do behind closed doors at deacons meetings and poorly led Bible studies. Arguing about greatness, power, who's in control, kingdom greatness of all things, discipleship greatness, who's top dog in God's eyes, who is the number one draft pick for the NFL Jesus team. Well, interestingly, Mark doesn't give us all the details of what went on in that conversation, but he does tell us that they weren't exactly arguing about who was the most humble. But we do know this. Jesus' question and Jesus' lesson to them reveals to us that pride had filled the disciples' hearts. So what does Jesus do? Jesus does what he always does. He teaches and he reveals what's in the heart. He gives them an object lesson, a visual display of what true greatness in the kingdom of God is about. He takes a young child and places him in their midst and declares that welcoming, associating, loving, and embracing on behalf of Christ. A little child, that is the heart of true greatness. Now, what exactly did Jesus mean by this? Why did he use a child as an object lesson to teach on true greatness in the kingdom? Well, in this section, Jesus wasn't focusing on the faith of the child. That's not what's being discussed here. Jesus is the one who grabbed the child, not the child grabbing Jesus. And it's not the child walking to Jesus. That's not the point of this passage. But by Jesus taking this child and embracing him, he was focusing on the insignificance and smallness of esteeming and elevating a young child. Taking someone that was small, someone who had no voice, someone who had no status in society, someone who couldn't pay the bills, someone who had no power in any kind of authority sense, someone that would not have been on the disciples' mind arguing about the greatest. He took a little child and embraced him, stooping low. And in the midst of this robust debate about human greatness, human strength, this act of humbly getting low with a child would have been so odd and rare to their ears. The child would not have been looked at as the first on the priority list of greatness, but probably the last. They would have been last on the priority list of being known 
being heard, being praised, or being celebrated. In that culture, the young children would not have been elevated to a high status of respect. In that house, there were lots of people. The disciples are all debating about who was the goat, who was the greatest of all time in God's eyes. And here's Jesus doing the counterintuitive thing. You're looking at all the wrong metrics for what is true greatness. So with this object lesson, what is Jesus doing? He's showing them that there is such a thing as true greatness in the kingdom. But it is a very different metric than the world's definition of greatness. The world says this, you want to be great? Get yours and move up. Jesus says, you want to be great? Get low and serve others. Get low and serve the least of these. Those like children who have no voice, who have no power, who have no status in society, serve in obscurity with insignificant and small people in the world's eyes. That is true greatness. Friends, we can always have it backwards, can't we? The world tends to define greatness about the size of your bank account and the size of your biceps. The world tends to define greatness by dominating others in order to get what you want. The world tends to feed our pride by telling us to outdo the next person, make a name for yourself, go up the corporate ladder, dog eat dog, and step on everyone along the way. But friends, the way of the cross is completely the opposite. Jesus, who inhabited eternity, left the throne room of heaven's highest glory, stooped down in the slums of human depravity, and he became like us. He left heaven's number one celebrity status to put on the work clothes of a lowly and despised slave and to die a criminal's death. A death he didn't deserve. Crimes he did not commit, but for the sins of all of us who were his enemies, who would have joined with those lawless men putting him on the cross. That's why Jesus here for us in Mark 9 and in Philippians 2 that Greg read earlier, Jesus embodies, he, he's a living and breathing example of what humility really is. Jesus is the definition of true greatness. Parents, if you want to model what your kids should want to be when they grow up, or your grandkids, what they should be when they grow up, put Jesus at number one. And if you say, Imitate me, imitate your mom, imitate your grandpa, imitate your grandma. Say this, imitate me only insofar as I imitate Jesus. Friends, Jesus should be the number one example we look to because Jesus defines humility. And Jesus also embodies the perfect example of what a church deacon should look like. One who humbly and serves others. Jesus also embodies what the perfect example of a courageous and compassionate pastor looks like as he leads and teaches and nourishes the souls of Christ's sheep. Oswald Chambers once said, true greatness 
True leadership is achieved not by reducing others to one's service, but in giving oneself in selfless service to them. You might be wondering, hadn't these disciples followed Jesus long enough to get this by now? I mean, he picked them. He didn't have to. I mean, haven't they kind of taken a few courses, taken a few years of the university class of Jesus? Shouldn't they be maturing by now? Shouldn't they begin to understand what Jesus was trying to teach them? You know, why weren't they growing up in spiritual maturity? Why did it seem like they were still learning the ABCs of following Jesus? Well, it's because their value system was off. Their mindsets of what success is was off. Their definition of greatness was off. It looked more like the world than it did God's standard of greatness. They were too focused, did you catch this? On comparing themselves by themselves. Guys, that is foolish. My, I am great. My, I am great. I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. Guys, that is a waste of time. We play that narrative in our head every day, don't we? Well, I've lost more weight than they said they were going to lose. <clears throat> or look at my new dress. Apparently, they haven't been shopping this year. You know, whatever it is, I say all the right answers. I'm quicker on my feet. I'm a better dad. I'm a better mom. Friends, we are self-righteous and prideful. All of us. You know why? Because we compare ourselves too much by ourselves. That's what the disciples are doing. They had the wrong example. Their view of greatness was actually pretty pathetic. It was looking at each other and sizing up each other. And Jesus here is going, guys, you're missing it. You're not growing up in maturity because you're comparing yourself to the wrong standard. You see, friends, it is only when we grow low that we grow up in spiritual maturity. Matt Smithers has said, Christian maturity is downward. It is growing not less aware of your unworthiness, but more. Isn't that precisely how Paul writes in his letters to the New Testament? I mean, does Paul write, yes, I am a big deal. Yes, I am an apostle. I forgot to mention, I am a big deal. Is that how he talks in his letters? Listen just to a sample of what Christ did in this proud man's heart. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Ephesians 3, 7 and 8, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or one of my favorites, 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Brothers and sisters, do you want to grow up spiritually? It begins by growing down in humility. If you want to grow up spiritually, it begins by growing down in humility. And friends, you have to repent. I have to repent of comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. Christ and Christ alone is our ultimate standard of true greatness. Friends, think back over this past week. 
How many arguments did you get into? How many little tiffs, if you like using that word, did you get involved in? What were those arguments or disputes about? What were you trying to gain by raising your voice and demanding to be obeyed? How would you have responded if Jesus had physically walked into the room and said, what are you arguing about? Would you have been ashamed and quiet? The disciples were. Friends, I've, I've been thinking about this this past week. For me personally, these few questions have convicted me. Would Jesus have approved of the arguments that you had this past week? Was Jesus' name made great in those arguments, or were you trying to outdo the other person and make a great name for yourself? A good verse to kind of tuck away. I love throwing out Proverbs here and there. They're super easy to remember. Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. Beloved, if, if you are a big deal, you don't need to tell other people you are. If you've got to tell people how great you are and how big of a deal you are, it actually shows how small you are. If your character, your job, your ministry, your talents, your parenting, your strengths, your resume, if they are worth talking about, then let God do the talking. Let others that God gives notice to, to say, wow, God is creating and producing and using you in great ways. Friends, we should pipe down tooting our own horns. And if we are worth talking about, let God use others to acknowledge it. We don't need to talk about it. If anyone would be first, what did Jesus say? He must be last of all and servant of all. And the disciples, they needed to have their definition of greatness altered, but we see they had one more lesson to be learned. They needed to have their vision of God's kingdom expanded. Lesson number two, to see the work of God's kingdom increase, the love of distinction must decrease. Look at verses 38 to 41 with me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following. Did you catch this? Us. Notice he did not say because he was not following with us. The disciples are so arrogant to say because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I don't know if you've ever seen this in the Gospels, but this is the only time in the Gospels where John, the Apostle John, alone is speaking up. It's the only time. And that's significant because we're going to see the mic brought up to John's mouth and we're going to see what John's really made of. What do we find out? He's very similar to Peter. Birds of a feather flock together. He's outspoken. He's very confident. He's passionate. He's aggressive. And he's somewhat self-assertive. Wow. His zeal and ambition 
had become so imbalanced and unhealthy and unloving that Jesus had to rebuke him. The zeal in his heart had somewhere along the way neglected the humility and the loving charity that should mark all of us as Christians. John calls out to Jesus as if he thinks Jesus is going to side with him. Hey, yo, Jesus, they're trying to do what we do, but they're not with us. I mean, I mean me, I mean you, I mean with us, Jesus. Apparently, some guy, his name's not even mentioned, is, is doing kingdom work. They're casting out demons, but they weren't traveling with the, the 12. So what's the big deal, right? What is John getting all fired up about? Mark tells us what got him a little upset. Verse 38, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Brothers and sisters, pride can reveal itself in the church by thinking the kingdom of God stops with you. Pride can show up in a church when the church is full of people who are trying to outdo others and make a name for themselves. Pride could even show up when we dismiss God's work in other people's lives. Beloved, if that's been your heart or my heart lately, we should confess that pride to the Lord and repent. God's kingdom is way bigger than our individual life, our individual family, our individual church. Friends, even the churches here in America, God's kingdom is vastly bigger. It is raw arrogance to think that we are somehow way more special than other Christians around the world or even in the River Valley. And friends, even amongst all the differences and disagreements our church might have with other churches here and beyond, friends, if they've got the true gospel, they've got the true Jesus, and they intend to be faithful to that Jesus, we want to speak as charitably as we can about God's work through them. We can disagree one thing that Christians have totally failed at in the last six years over the last two or three presidential elections and COVID and everything else of the sun is this. Christians have lost their minds that you can disagree deeply with another Christian and still love them deeply. That is a rant for me right now. It boils in me when I see dear brothers in Christ who come at different conclusions on legitimately biblically important things and hate each other, cancel each other out, say very unkind things publicly and privately about them, which is not godly. As Christians, we can have sharp disagreements on doctrine, on ecclesiology, on ministry philosophy, but if Christ is in them and Christ is in you, even amidst all those disagreements, just because they're not following with you or following with us, doesn't mean God isn't using them. Friends, that's, that's in part what we should be seeing about Jesus rebuking John. John is so preoccupied with the 12 that we're the elites. The kingdom has arrived with us and us only. And Jesus says, your view of the kingdom's pathetic. You want to see the kingdom of God? You want to see the work expand? Then you're going to have to decrease in your perception of you. The distinction of self. Friends, I think we can also learn here a lesson from John 
is that zeal without knowledge is not good. Zeal without knowledge is not good. One of the things that is such a paralyzing and common thing amongst young people is they're full of passion but have very little wisdom. Uh, Friends, pray for God to give you wisdom. As Proverbs 19.2 says, desire without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Well, friends, one of the things that Jesus would do is that he would correct John's understanding that pride was reaching up into his heart as well. He had to correct them and help them see, listen, if, if this dear disciple, this nameless person that you don't think is really all that important is doing my work and he's for real, truth and time will reveal it. Any person who cares for and loves even the most common acts of kindness of giving a cup of water to a disciple, well, they belong to me. Well, Jesus certainly embodied perfectly on how he lived, what he taught. Jesus defined humility, and he was equipping these young men for the road ahead. Friends, these disciples had heard Jesus teach many times. Two times in a row, they heard the gospel. They heard what he was about to accomplish, and yet they were still misguided. Friends, earlier in the service, I asked a few questions. Do you think it's possible that you might be believing, even this morning, in a false gospel? Well, you need to define our terms, right? What is the gospel? It is the good news about God's merciful provision for mankind's greatest problem. What is our greatest problem? Our sin that begins in our hearts is a offense to God. We fall short of his glory. We are alienated and separated from him, and we need to be rescued. We need to be given a new heart that teaches us Christ-like humility. Friends, what gospel were these disciples believing in? I think in some way or fashion, they were believing in the self-fulfillment gospel. The self-fulfillment gospel. It goes like this. God loves me so much that he's given a wonderful plan for my life. Above all, he wants me to be happy, healthy, and successful above all else. It's the message that says God loves me just the way I am and would never want me to be sad, disappointed, or face suffering of any kind. It's the message that says God wants me to do whatever makes me happy and don't let anyone get in my way. Go, fulfill your dreams, and if you trust in him, he'll make those dreams come true. Friends, America has bought that false gospel. The disciples of Jesus, thinking that true greatness is get up the ladder and go get yours. The disciples of Jesus said, hey, we need to rebuke them and stop them because they're not one of us. Pride, pride can distort our understanding of the gospel. And friends, the true gospel, the only gospel, is not fundamentally about our personal gain, our personal fulfillment, our personal comforts or conveniences or plans coming to fruition. Friends, the gospel, the good news is that we are really, really bad and God is really, really good. And the greatest thing 
that we could ever experience is God showing mercy to really bad people like us. And he's done that through his son, Jesus Christ, the one who received praises endless, the greatest of heaven's praises, came down and became the last of all, the servant of all for his own enemies, for his enemies that he would make his friends. He hung on that cross that he promised he would do. He bore our penalty for our sin, and he was killed as he said he would. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Friends, the greatest news, the gospel that you first believed many years ago is still good news today. Never grow tired, never grow weary, never grow bored with simply treasuring the gospel of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, friends, that that good news is extended to you. You've already bought the lie that greatness is climbing up the ladder. You've seen that it's left you empty and void. Friends, look at Christ. He gave his life to give you life. Turn from your sins and trust in him. Friends, the message of the cross, when rightly understood and humbly received by faith, will take root in the lives of God's people. The theology of the cross will crucify our natural preoccupation with the love of self. And it will create in us a deep, abiding love for the name of Christ. Friends, as an encouragement to you, one prayer that we've had on Sunday nights as a church, if you recall one of those prayer requests, is, Father, pray, we pray that you would keep us from being entitled, that you would prevent us from thinking we deserve anything, that we would be a servant-minded church. Friends, I am so thankful I'm seeing God answer those prayers. A vast portion of you guys, over a third, serve in children's ministry. I would say probably dozens of you serve on service teams. And many of you are serving one another, coming alongside one another in each other's lives of time of suffering and need. Friends, I am praising God as your pastor. The elders are praising God for seeing the gospel take root in your hearts. Be encouraged. And may we continue to press on to be that servant-minded church as Christ intends. The motto of the world says, outdo others while you make a name for yourself. The message of the cross says, serve others while you make much of the name of Christ. May we at CCBC continue to look away from ourselves and look perfectly at the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that you have given us the true definition of greatness. Lord, we pray that you would continue to teach us that to grow up in maturity, it requires us getting low in humility. Lord, teach us again by staring at the cross what humility is, that Christ died for us, and that we as followers of Christ are called to take up our cross and follow him. Lord, we pray at CCBC we would be a servant-minded church, 
where we never grow cold or tired towards the gospel, that we would not believe a false gospel of the self-fulfillment gospel. But the old story, the good news that God has provided, you have provided that merciful provision for our greatest problem. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.